We continue in our study of struggling well through the uh, epistle to the Philippians from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Last week, we looked at two friends of Paul's, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and how they're examples of struggling well. This week, as we go to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and I invite you to open your Bibles there to Philippians 3, 1 through 7, we're, we're going to be looking at a bit of Paul's autobiographical information, uh, things that he tells us about himself in struggling well. And here we will look at this from the standpoint of having no confidence in ourselves, but all confidence in Christ. As we do this, I'm going to begin by sharing a story of, a brief story of a man, then we'll look at the longer story of Paul, and then we'll look at a brief story of another man from another continent at another time, okay? Uh, So three people in three different epics, but all having this principle of no confidence in ourselves. The first one comes from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is a a sign, a placard for the first African Baptist church established in 1809 as one of the first black Baptist churches in America. A little bit after the church was founded, two members of the church sold themselves into slavery in order to free a slave who they wanted to have be their pastor, a man by the name of Henry Cunningham. These two men sold themselves into the slavery of this slave owner in order that Henry Cunningham would be freed to go and serve their church. Now, that's what you call no confidence in yourself, but all confidence in Christ, right? Uh, There's some interesting things that happen because the church then uh, took it upon itself to try to raise money to be able to purchase the freedom of the two guys who had been the, talk about serving on a search committee, you know, <laughs> That's, that'd be quite, quite, quite a little bit more uh, dedication than what is actually given to many search committees, right? <laughs> Henry Cunningham and these two fellows who sold themselves into slavery in order to obtain a pastor. Um, let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Philippians 3, 1 through 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put... No confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Please have a seat. So there's two things we're going to look at at here. The first is in verses 1 through 3. Watch out for legalism if we are to struggle well. And secondly, struggling well requires the counting of everything as loss for the sake of Christ. Watch out for legalism if we are to struggle well. Notice that Paul begins by saying finally. That word finally doesn't mean uh, now the last thing I'm going to say because he's about halfway through the epistle. It means as for the rest of what I want to say. Okay, so he's, he's as for the rest of what I want to say, rejoice in the Lord. Um, Paul's entire letter here has a focus on joy and rejoicing. It's part of struggling well. Experiencing joy and rejoicing beyond our circumstances, but actually rejoicing in the Lord. We'll talk about what in the Lord means in a moment, but I want to review for you a little bit of these words for rejoice and joy in this epistle. Um, Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 18. Um, Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 25. Uh, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Chapter 2, verse 17. uh, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious, so receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, is the one we're looking at right now. But then chapter 4 is filled with these words as well. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, my brothers, whom I long, love and long for, my joy and crown. Chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, um, <clears throat> verse 4. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Fascinating here, isn't it? These words that appear over and over, joy, rejoice, joy, and rejoice. Uh, We have to have this as a kind of a bedrock foundation in thinking about our joy and rejoicing cannot be in the circumstances with which life presents us, but rather it needs to be in the Lord. This phrase, in the Lord, is an interesting one as well here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. It means, it's really the key to struggling well, that the ground of our existence is in the Lord. And there's a, a whole bunch of ways in which this phrase, in the Lord, is used in the epistle. Let me take you on a journey there. Chapter 1, verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Uh, Chapter uh, 2, verse 19, 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 24. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Chapter um, 2, verse 29. Uh, So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Um, Stand firm thus in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat you, Odi, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. (laughs) This, This combination of rejoicing and in the Lord cannot be easily dismissed. We must embrace it and meditate on it and think about it. The key to struggling well is that the ground of our existence is in the Lord, and in that position, we have opportunity for rejoicing. It is not because life goes well for us. It is not because we have achieved goals. It is not because New Year's resolutions have actually been fulfilled. (laughs) It is because we know God. And we live in the sphere of his sovereign love. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Why does Paul make this reminder? Why does he say it over and over, all through this letter? This joy, rejoice, and in the Lord, in the Lord, all of that. Why does he repeat it all over the time? Well, he tells us here in the second half of verse 1 in chapter 3, to write the same things to you. is no trouble to me. Um, There are reasons for repetition. I know we can get frustrated by repetition. I've heard people say of like worship songs. They don't like uh, worship songs that repeat. You you need to read Psalm 136. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of repetition in the Bible, and the reason for repetition in the Bible is because we need to hear it. We need to hear it over and over and over. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for him to say those things. Paul says, it's not a bother for me to remind you. I don't know about you, but sometimes it does get a little bothersome when someone asks the same question again and again and again. Does that ever bother you? You're like, oh, come on. I've already answered that question, right? Um, I had a grandfather who I overheard him say one time, I don't mind telling somebody something once, but I don't want to tell them again. And then I made a little mental note, don't ever ask grandpa the same question twice. You know, That's not how God is. It's not how the Apostle Paul is. To write these things, no trouble for me. And, he says, it's safe for you. There's a security in saying these same things. You know, sometimes we go, well, I don't know why we go to church. He tells the same message every week about how we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ to, for the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died as a payment for our sin. He rose again on the third day, and he's coming back to take us to be with him. I, I've heard that. Why do I need to do it again? Why do I need to hear it? It's your security. It's our security. Write the same things to you. It's no trouble to me. It's safe for you. 
Now he launches into this watch out for legalism if we're to struggle well. Look out for the dogs. Now, dogs in the Bible and nearly everywhere in the third world are not like your pet. So push your pet out of your mind when he, you read this statement, look out for the dogs. Dogs are scavengers that run in packs that will attack people. Um, when I lived in Bolivia, uh, one out of every three stray dogs, and there were lots of them, one out of every three uh, was uh, rabid, a rabid dog. Uh, my middle son was bitten by a rabid dog, had to have the rabies vaccinations. I had a friend who worked for Habitat for Humanity. He got bit three different times by three different dogs, all of them rabid, and had to have the vaccinations all three times. So when Paul says, watch out for the dogs, he's thinking that, not your precious Fifi, okay? He's not talking about that. He's talking about these scavengers that travel around in packs that are after something, okay? And his reference is to these people who want to define righteousness not by a relationship with Jesus Christ, but by the things you do and don't do, and they get to make the list of the things that you do and don't do. That's what legalism is. Now, who are these dogs? He calls them evildoers. Now, I don't know about you, but quite often when I think of evildoers, I think of a category different. I think of people that are doing crimes and murders and all kinds of really evil, rotten things. I don't think of the legalist who's telling me that I'm reading the wrong book or listening to the wrong music or what have you like that. And, and Paul says, no, no, no. All those people are in the same group, evil doers. He uses the word next, uh, mutilators, those who mutilate the flesh. It's a play on words to the word circumcision found in verse 3. And it's nothing less than this Jewish elite aristocracy who are seeking to rob believers of their freedom and joy in Christ. Paul says, they're not just people who are circumcisers, they're mutilators. What are these dogs doing? They are saying that there's a righteousness that can be obtained by following their rules. Now, whenever we read the letters of the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, what is the comparable situation that we're facing today? Because the situation is what brought about the letter. It's all of the letters of the New Testament are what are called occasional. That is, they arise out of the circumstances that the church is facing. And the, uh, the, the apostles write these letters as a response to the conditions that the church or the persons are facing. So as we look at this, we see that the Philippians must certainly have been wrestling with an issue of people who are seeking to spy out the freedom that they have in Christ. Now, the difficult thing is trying to figure out what are the comparable particulars that we have today. 
what ways in which are we facing a similar circumstance to the church at Philippi? And that's a really tough question because what happens is we either oversell it or undersell it. We'll either, either say it's, we're exactly like their, them or we're not at all like them. Uh, so, at the risk of getting into some trouble here, I'm going to share with you some comparable situations that I think we face today. To be sure, some of my own oxes are being gored here, okay? Um, and so, if you're offended, know that I am offended by my own preaching here, okay? We have a strong sense of legalism in us. I think it's in everyone's heart. And to try to root it out is a painful and difficult thing. So let me give some. I think making pronouncements about what is biblical on church services in a pandemic can be legalistic. There are people who say, if you do anything but live stream, you are not being biblical because you don't love your neighbor. There are others who say, if you fail to meet, you are not being biblical because that's what it means. I think maybe pronouncements like that of all kinds may be legalistic. Defining church fellowship by one's views of masks and distancing and vaccination. Making it a matter of fellowship what one believes about the current or any former president of the United States. Making it a matter of fellowship, what one believes about the current condition of racial equity, the nature of past problems of such kind, and what our society should do about them in the future can easily turn into a legalistic situation. The more opinions that we stake a claim of Christian absolute over that have no absolute basis in the Bible, the more we will take sides and each side ends up becoming dogs, mutilators of the flesh, evildoers seeking to rob us of our freedom in Christ to the other side. Making pronouncements about many, many lifestyle choices like how to educate one's children, or whether to drink alcohol, or whether to recycle, or whether to celebrate a variety of holidays, whether it's Christmas, birthdays, Halloween, or whatever. What kinds of clothes we wear, what kinds of music we listen to, what kinds of food we eat, what kinds of books, movies, social media we utilize. If only we made as much of Jesus Christ as we have historically done these issues, we would be so much a truer witness of the glory of the gospel. How do we handle it when people want to rob us of our freedom? Too often, we do so with a defensiveness and a dismissive attitude that alienates and does not win people over. So what do we do? Well, look at verse 3. It seems to me that the way that we respond in these circumstances is that we would know our position in Christ so well that we would be able to fight ourselves against legalistic tendencies. Fighting well against those who want to spy on us requires that we know whose we are. We belong to Jesus. Notice how he says it. We are the circumcision. That means we're the true God followers. 
Gentile and Jewish believer alike, whether physically circumcised or not, we are the circumcision, the, the, the identified people of God. We are the true worshipers, worshiping by the Spirit of God. It's a sense of serving in the presence of God. That's what this idea is, is the idea of service in the presence of God. Our lives is an offering of service. We put the significance in the right place. We glory or boast in Christ Jesus. This is not have any hint of kingdom building for ourselves, but rather seeking the exaltation of Christ. Not boasting in how we educate or what we drink or don't or whether we recycle or what holidays we celebrate or what clothes we wear or what foods we eat or music we listen to or what books and media we use. No, only boast in Christ. And we do not give one iota about our works in relationship to God's approval. Look at the end of verse 3. And put, can we say the word here together? And put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh? No confidence. You see, the difficulty of any works-based system of justification is this question, when do you know when you've done enough? And the answer, of course, is that you will never know. It's either rejoice in the Lord or confidence in the flesh. There is no middle ground. Those are your two. Rejoice in the Lord. Confidence in the flesh. So, watch out for legalism if we are to struggle well. Next, struggling well requires the counting of everything but Christ as a loss. Here Paul goes into a little bit of his biography, telling a little bit about himself, uh, drawing back the curtain of his past life. And he says, look, if, if anybody had reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got it, right? Um, if anybody could boast in, I've done enough to please God, it was Paul. He's saying, if you want to play that game, I was one of the best at it, okay? I was really, really good at that, at that game. And he says, think about some of the things that make me kind of qualified to have this so-called confidence in the flesh. First, I had really great parents. That's what it means by circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, before he ever had any consciousness, he had a mom and a dad that were making sure that he was having the sign of being a part of God's covenant people. I, I got it. And it was on the eighth day. And he knows his family tree, which was not necessarily something that everybody knew in the first century, because when the Jewish people got carried off into captivity, some of the genealogical records got lost. 
But Paul says, my family kept the records. I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I know my family tree. I belong to God's ancient people. They shouldn't exist, God's ancient people, but they do, and I'm one of them. In fact, I'm one of the best of them. That's what a Hebrew of Hebrews means, right? I was, I, you want to you have a, a ranking? I was valedictorian of the Jewish people. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, in relationship to Torah, in relationship to Torah, I was of the party of the Pharisees. Now, this requires some explanation because what we think of, when we think of the word Pharisee and what Paul means here are two different things. What we think of is the word Pharisee, it means hypocrite. That's what we think it means. That's not what Paul, that's not the sense in which Paul is using this word here. Paul is using the word in sense of the theological position of the Pharisees, which was virtually indistinguishable from the theological position of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the Gospels distinguish the Pharisees and Jesus so much, because the people of the day would go, well, he's just another one of those Pharisee guys. Think about what the Pharisees believed. They believed that there was an afterlife. They believed in the authority of the Word of God and in its practical working out in everyday life. The Pharisees were people who not only loved the scriptures, they memorized them. And they believed in absolute observance of the letter of the law. And Paul says, I was one of those guys. I was serious about this. You want to have confidence in the flesh? I, I was a Pharisee. He's calling that a qualification for confidence in the flesh, not the sense in which we would use it. As to zeal, you want to think about how zealous I was for my theological position when I saw a, what I determined to be a sect rising in strength and power against my understood theological position based on the word of God, I had those people arrested and I even tried to get them killed. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Stamping out any opponents. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. This has to do with Torah observance. Paul is not saying that he's without, he was without sin here. In fact, his point is actually that this kind of righteousness is absolutely nothing. What he means is that as far as Torah observance goes, and in the way the Pharisees interpreted the law, he followed it all. I have a whole set of books that are this high that are the compilation of the laws of the Pharisees. It's known as the Mishnah. It was written down a couple of centuries later, but it was, to be sure, it was what Paul was following. And he says, as to all of that, as far as how clean my cup was and whether I used it and when I used it and how far I walked on the Sabbath and all of the rest of it, I was strict in my observance. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul knows that this kind of righteousness is absolutely nothing. In fact, next week, and in just a few verses, he's going to equate it with garbage. It's garbage. 
Now there's three ways in which this kind of righteousness applies today as I have thought about it. And again, I may be turning to meddling instead of preaching here. I know I am in my own mind. Some folks have equated national patriotism with Christianity and regard patriotic days as significant holidays in the church calendar. This has been true historically in our own country and in many countries in the world throughout history. This can, doesn't always, but it can fall under the phrase confidence in the flesh, having confidence in ourselves. And we need to be aware of that. Second, boasting in our family heritage. It's not wrong to be proud of your family, but boasting in our family heritage, who we are related to, as though that has some spiritual advantage to us and brings spiritual deficit to others, that's boasting in the flesh. Third, defining godliness by what we do or don't do instead of knowing Christ, these are all ways that we can easily put confidence in the flesh. Look now at verse 7. Paul says, all of that, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, all of that is to law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. All of that, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's upsetting his entire list of priorities. Paul is a changed man. Everything he'd held dear is now nothing to him. Nothing. What was gained for me, I count loss for the sake of Christ. It's a market exchange language. I had counted it as of extreme value, and now I count it as zero. Nothing. What gain was lost? What did Paul have in his zeal as a Hebrew of Hebrews that he lost when he became a Christ follower? Well, he lost his reputation. Think of how it suffered in the eyes of the people who had mattered most his entire life to him. Now, he was nothing to them. In fact, worse than nothing, an enemy. Think of the influence that he once had. Here he was an influential man, a man of brilliance, a man regarded within the cadre of Phariseeism as a man who was worth listening to, a sage, if you will. Now all of that influence is gone. Think about how that might have affected, and we don't even think about the psychology of the apostles, do we? But think about how that might have affected his sense of worth. Ever thought about that? Everybody that once loved and respected and honored him, now nothing. His sense of being well regarded. I don't even know that we understand the monetary implications because these guys were pretty wealthy. 
they were re- well regarded and had, had developed quite interesting systems of relating to one another in such a way that they all made sure that everybody in their group was successful. And Paul lost it all, and he didn't care. Why? Because he had Jesus. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. You know, that word count, we've seen that word before in this letter, haven't we? Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 6, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we're going to see it two more times next week in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And now verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul does not deny the advantages of his former life, but he does renounce dependency upon those advantages as a means to spiritual blessing. Paul did not stop being a Jew. It is highly doubtful that he even stopped his Torah observances, but he counted it as loss of whatever he held on to that would have been gain for the sake of Christ, for knowing him, for finding eternal life in him. And let's not skip over that word Christ. We sometimes run over the names of Jesus. Paul, I think in particular, picks just the single word Christ there in verse 7. It means Messiah. It means the anointed one, the king. Paul says, I'm no longer kingdom building for myself. In fact, I can't build a kingdom for myself. I must serve the true king, the true Messiah, Jesus. And I'll count everything as a loss for the sake of my king, the sake of my Jesus. This is Paul's personal testimony in struggling well. What he used to hang on to, he let go of in order to obtain Christ. Now, there are all kinds of ways in which we press against this. And the way in which we press against it is what the Bible calls self-righteousness. Yes, but, but what about this in me? You know? And there's a pastor in Washington, Illinois, his name is Josh. He wrote a little article on the characteristics of a self-righteous man that I thought was good enough that I might share some of those things in that article with you. Um, a self-righteous person feels superior to everyone else, thinks that they're the best person in the room. Uh, they'll make, mistake, uh, make fun of other people's mistakes and flaws. They hate to admit that they're wrong, uh, lack of willingness to accept that they're wrong. They think other people should kind of bow to their intelligence or power or status. They insist on having their own way um, 
They love to talk and talk and talk and never listen. They hate it when other people disagree with them. They pretend that everything they do is for the benefit of others, and they can't understand why other people don't know how what they're doing is so good for them. (laughs) They lack empathy. They don't see their own shortcomings. They claim superiority while claiming some level of moral virtue. They lean toward being angry because they don't always get their way. They have a sense of entitlement where they make their own decisions with what they have in mind. They want the attention that they, when they are identified as correct. Obviously, every one of us have this level of self-righteousness in us. And it rears its ugly head in the worst moments, doesn't it? Usually in an immediate kind of emotional response to things. We need to think about that and say, I count all of it as loss for the sake of Christ. So I told you the story of the pastor in Philadelphia spent a length of time talking about the Apostle Paul's biography. Now I want to take you to 20th century Soviet Union and a man by the name of Eugene Pushkoff who was in a group called the Evangelical Christian Baptists. Now, if you look that group up, you'll see that they have their own problems with legalism, but Eugene Pushkoff had a wonderful testimony of counting everything as loss for the sake of Christ. He was a, um, a violinist, a very famous violinist, in fact, in the Chelyabinsk Symphony Orchestra. He gave up that post to devote himself fully to the Evangelical Christian Baptist Church work. He was sentenced to three years of hard labor in 1980 for organizing Baptist youth musical choral church groups and for serving as an evangelical Christian Baptist pastor in the Ukrainian town of Kartsysk. He was released in 1983 at the age of 43, and he was asked, put it in quotes, he was asked by the KGB to cooperate with them, that is to be a KGB informer. I cannot compromise, was his reply. And so after only 25 days of freedom with his wife and eight children, he was rearrested. He appealed his sentence of four years, and the authorities responded by doubling it. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, whether it's these two fellows who sold them into slavery for their church to have a pastor, or Eugene Pushkoff, who refused to cooperate with the KGB and ended up going to prison for eight more years and the loss of his health, um, the loss of his family, or the Apostle Paul, who had such a titled position within Judaism and forsaking it all 
Lord, help us to keep in mind that we struggle well when we forsake legalism and when we acknowledge, oh God, that we must count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. I do not know what all are mentioned in people's minds, our thoughts, as we're praying right now, that they're holding on to too dearly. I do not know everything, but I know that we have idols of the heart, every one of us. Help us once again to lay them back on the altar and say, Lord Jesus, you matter more to me than anything. I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Oh God, would you awaken anyone here or in the sound of my voice via live stream who has never put their faith in Jesus? May they forget, ask, ask Jesus to forgive them of their sin by what he did at the cross. May they express faith in him to be the one who would pay for their sin. May they commit their lives to him, knowing that he rose from the dead and will bring them to be with him forever. And Lord, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, teach us what it means to die daily to these things and that we would make nothing more important than knowing our King, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.